Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Today, I'm chatting with Barry Uremcio about winter feeding and making sure that your stored feed maintains quality. But before we get into all the fun stuff, uh, Barry, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do? Good afternoon, Joanna. I'm a beef nutritionist that works out of Stetler, Alberta. We formed our own independent consulting company about two and a half years ago. Uh, Prior to that, I worked for 18 years as the beef nutritionist uh, at the Ag Info Center in Stetler with Alberta Agriculture. So a little bit of a change, but I'm still in the same same area of practice. Right on. So first thing first, I guess, um, feed storage. What What are the top three things you consider when you're storing uh, feed for cattle? First thing is the bales go through a secondary sweat roughly two, three days after the hay's been baled or the green feed's been baled. So I like to see the bales stay in the field for approximately two weeks. That allows them to breathe, have the moisture content equalize throughout the bales. During the cool evenings, you can dissipate some of that heat, radiant heat that's absorbed during the day. Or if you, this year, for example, a lot of baling occurred when temperatures were in that 30 to 35 degree range. So letting that, those bales uh, equalize before you stack them reduces the chances of them overheating and causing a bale fire. Second thing is moisture content. If the bales are taken in tough, heating can occur. When temperatures get above 40 degrees Celsius, the milliard reaction occurs, which uh, binds some of the available protein to the fiber comp- component, especially the neutral detergent fiber, making some of that protein unavailable. So second good reason for letting those bales stay outside is if you were to stack them on top of each other in a in enclosed space, that heat would generate, there'd be uh, soluble sugars used by the microbes to take advantage of the available moisture and cause more problems. So another good reason for leaving them out for a couple of weeks. Now the design that the bales are stored, if you can't store them under a shed, which is the best way to do it, or if you want to store them under plastic uh, as individually wrapped bales or in a, in a row, those will, give you good opportunities to have those bales protected from moisture. But if you're stacking, the one system that I do not uh, recommend at all is the pyramid shape where you've got four at the bottom, three, two, one, all the way to the top. Problem with that is moisture enters between the bales, either as rain or when the snow melts, and that moisture will cause spoilage wherever those bales are touching. 
the mushroom stack where one is laid sideways and the other one laid flat as a pedestal. Uh, the top bale generally does very well, but the bottom bale has problems with moisture migrating in either from the top or from the bottom with the flat contact area onto the ground. The most recommended way to stack those bales is in individual rows. I know it takes a lot more space, but stack them in individual rows, keeping them about four to six inches apart so they don't touch. You don't want the stacks to be along a, <clears throat> a row of trees. You want them in an open area where you've got good drainage. And if you can, stack them northwest to southeast so the prevailing winds in the wintertime will blow the snow out from between the bales. Anything you can do to maintain the condition by not allowing that moisture to spoil, cause spoilage, you'll be, you'll be ahead in the long run. Right. Uh, one of the biggest issues we've had up here with feed storage over the last couple of years is elk, especially last year with the shortage of feed everywhere. Um, so do you have any suggestions or recommendations for keeping wildlife away from stored feed? Unfortunately, elk and moose don't respect an electric fence. If they hit one of those, they just go right through them and they'll do what they want to do. The only thing that I've seen that tends to work is if you've got your bales stacked in an area, the only thing to do is stack a couple, uh, stack straw bales side by side tight, too high, so that there's no room for those animals to get through. It's the only things that seem to be working right now. That makes sense. And I've heard some different ideas about when feed tests should be taken, um, especially with silage, whether it's uh, recommended to take them right as the silage is being put up or if it's better to, to test shortly before you start feeding. So when you're taking feed tests, when should you be sampling that silage? There's two trains of thought on this one. If you do a good job of packing and covering the pit quickly after the silage is being made, the quality coming out of the pit should be very, very close to what is going in. So one thought is to get a, a lead, some lead time into knowing what your feed quality is, is when the loads are coming into the pile pit or into the bagger, Every three or four loads, take a handful, throw it into a 20 liter pail, put the lid back on, keep it sealed so the moisture doesn't evaporate and do that till the bag is full or until you've uh, finished for the day. Once you do that, mix the sample with a large Ziploc bag, fill it about, or mix up the sample, fill a Ziploc bag about half full and squeeze the air out of it, seal it and put it into a freezer. Submit the sample frozen. Now, if you have two or three bags from the one pit, combine those three and send them in as one sample. It gives you a good representative sample. Second one is if you've got access to what they call a, a silage probe, generally it's similar to that of what you use for sampling bales, except it's an inch to an inch and a quarter in diameter. The sections come in three foot lengths. 
So you can either go down three feet, six feet, or nine feet into the pile or into the pit, depending on how big it is, and take a sample after that silage has fermented for four to five weeks. Um, it gets a fair bit of material when you're going down six or nine feet, but try to get at least six uh, samples. If you can go up to 10, so much the better. And that will give you a fairly good representative sample of one in. Only thing to watch out for with that big silage probe is you need a three-quarter horse uh, drill and a couple extra batteries because it takes a lot of power to get that to work. Um, if you wait until the sample is taken off the face of the pit, um, you need to feed at least for a couple weeks so you'll get off the slant or you get a, a good representative face opened up. When you do take it off the face of the pit after, the, after it's opened or after the bag's been opened, rub your hand up and down the face of the pit or the pile or the face of the pile to rub off all of the material that's loose and then take pinch samples across the face of the face of the bag or across the face of the pit in an M or a W pattern. And you need to, again, be in that 20, 20 small pinches to get a good representative sample. The only thing I would suggest is if you do take the fresh samples, I would uh, find a way to retest the moisture content. It might change a little bit. And if there's more than 5% variation between what you took with the pail versus what you're getting out after you open up the pit, then those rations should be reformulated. That makes sense. So on that same note of feed quality, what are some factors to be considered when you're buying feed in or organizing your feed yard and thinking about forming those rations just in the planning phase? The first thing is to get representative samples so you can test the quality of the hay. Color is great. It tells you that the hay has been put up without any rain. Nice smell indicates the bale has not heated. But the only thing is it doesn't give you a quantitative value. Protein, fibers, energy, trace minerals, minerals need all, all need to be done. Protein and fibers can be done either by NIR or wet chemistry, NIR being near-infrared spectrometry. Both, both systems work very well, but the minerals and trace minerals need to be done by wet chemistry. That's the standard that's been used for years. Near-infrared spectrometry is too variable. It's not precise enough to do a good ration. I guess the big thing when you're actually... Uh, figuring out what you're going to do with the feed in the year is place it in a pattern that provides you with easy access. If you know that you want to use the green feed up first, uh, because those typically tend to have more problems with mice and deterioration compared to hay, put them in a location so that you can have easy access and keep them close to where they're going to be fed. Second step is with hay, or straw, when you have the quality known, is that bale going to be used or that type of hay going to be used for cows that are pregnant or after calving, or if you're gonna be used for feeding the calves. So set up your feed storage areas so that you aren't moving bales three and four times to get to what you want. 
just takes too much time and diesel fuel is not cheap. Sure, that makes sense. So the last episode we did two years ago, <laughs> which will be linked in the description here, uh, we chatted about some things to look in your, your feed tests and, and supplements yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but supplements are often used to deal with protein or energy deficiencies. So what do you recommend if there isn't enough protein or energy in your feed when those feed tests come back? The energy and protein content in the feeds this year are coming back fairly good, much better than last year or the year before. So there should be less problems with deficiencies, but depending on how late that forage was cut, if it got rained on, the type of feed it is, is it a, an aftermath, a Timothy aftermath or something like that, you know that your protein and energy are going to be down. So depends on the type of forage. And the only thing you can do with a protein deficiency is supplement. You've got a number of different choices. You can go with a 32% uh, pellet. You can go with a 16 or an 18% uh, grain pellet, urea, liquid molasses products, or uh, peas, lentils, faba beans, anything that's a, a legume type pro, uh, grain will have that 24, 25% protein. So to me, the decision is what do you want to use? What do you have available? And what is the cost? Some of these products, very efficient, very good. Urea, unfortunately, is not good for calves under 450 pounds. They just don't have a digestive system that is fully developed or fully mature, and they can't utilize the, the urea. For mature cows or bigger animals, you're going to need a soluble carbohydrate, such as two or three pounds of grain, so that they do get to use that urea properly and uh, cost. Cost is a big one. You have to figure out what is the actual cost per pound of protein that you're feeding. Some are more expensive, some are more efficient. All depends where you are and how much you need. With energy, most of the time when you look at a straw, that's probably your lowest quality for energy, 40, 45% TDM. The Timothy aftermath, some of the slough haze, probably in the low 50s range, reasonably good quality grass hay, high 50s to low 60s, and then an alfalfa grass hay, usually in that 62, 63% range. Corn, on the other hand, can be as high as 70, depending on the, on the grain development in that crop. So what I use as a rule of thumb is for a cow in mid-pregnancy, late pregnancy, and after calving, you need 7, 9, and 11% protein and 50, or no, 55, 60, and 65% TDN to meet their requirements. So if it gets colder, you're going to need more energy. Uh, the smaller the animal, the higher the protein content. So if you're backgrounding calves, you know, I, a rule of thumb, it's a little bit generous. I know that. But if you've got a thousand pound animal, roughly 10% protein to uh, keep that animal going. For every hundred pounds lighter, 
an animal is, you increase the protein content by 1%. So a 500 pound calf would roughly need 14 to 15% protein. Now, it's important to make sure you get the protein into these animals. Uh, for example, the growing animals, they need that to develop the muscle, to develop the bone, stretch and frame out properly. So just throwing oats to an animal because they're a little short of energy may solve that problem, but are they going to be able to grow properly or are they just going to uh, fatten up and be short butterballs? For the pregnant cows, the requirements increase as the fetus increases in size to maintain that healthy calf that's going to be born, but cow condition and how you're feeding her this winter will impact the success of next year's breeding season. So it's not, you're not just doing one thing. You're, you're working on a full yearly cycle. It's not just two or three months at a time. And adjacent to that, how stable are, is protein and energy in, in your stored feed? How well does that stay in there? The protein and energy content in a stored feed generally is uh, fairly stable or fairly consistent as long as the bales don't start heating or if there's a lot of uh, weather damage to those bales, uh, the amount can be reduced. If temperatures get above 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius, that Maillard reaction will cause uh, the bales to slump just because of the heating. Protein will be bound and less available to the animal and soluble sugars will be used to, to keep those bacteria alive that are causing the heating process. So you can see two, three, 4% reduction in protein and probably five to seven points differential in energy density in those heated bales. The other thing is bales that are stored for two years or three years, the digestibility goes down by 10 to 15% per year. And you can see 2 or 3% reduction in protein and 5-point reduction in energy content just because of the weather damage to those bales over that second and third year. So if you've got your options, try to use the oldest bales first when the cows are in mid-pregnancy. Or if you need to supplement the pastures this fall uh, before, you, before you bring the cows in off feed, Use the older bales first because it seems to fit the program better in that situation. That makes sense. Adjacent to that, I I know vitamins are kind of some of the first things to leach out of hay and silage when we put it up. So can that be counteracted or do we have to get those uh, vitamins back into our cattle uh, through supplements and stuff? When forage is fermented, uh, in the in siling process, all the vitamin precursors are oxidized and destroyed. So there's nothing available for the silage. You have to start supplementing as soon as you start feeding the silage. With hay or green feed, uh, vitamin A and vitamin E precursors are in the forages. And after six months, those uh, precursors start to be oxidized and they lose their potency. So I recommend that after six, if your hay is more than six months old, start, uh, start supplementing. That makes sense. 
And are minerals affected that way as well? No, we're very fortunate. Mineral concentrations are stable and they do should not change from year to year. Or uh, some of the stuff that I've seen over the years is if you've got a good idea of what your mineral content is, hay off of a certain piece of land or your trace minerals are from that piece of land, they should be fairly stable from year to year as long as the weather patterns don't go, uh, uh, go wet. And then you'll see changes because of more mineralization from the soil. So we touched on this a little bit already, but it looks like we won't be quite as short of feed as we were uh, last year, especially if you're in a piece. But we always have kind of that poor quality feed that's around that we want to get rid of. And how can we make the most of, of what we have there uh, without losing out on nutrition? If we've got some of those two, three-year-old bales or just some aftermath or stuff, something like that, that's not quite as good quality. Hay, as it loses quality in storage from year two to year three, those bales will reduce in weight by roughly 150 to 200 pounds per year, but they also will drop in protein and energy. So if you're going to be using that older feed, retest. If nothing else, just do the fibers, energies, and proteins to get, get a good indication of where things are at. Um, sampling the Timothy aftermath or straws to find out what their quality is helps to make a ration when you have the quality already uh, determined for the for the better quality feeds. So once you know what's in the good feeds and what it's in the bad feeds, then you can start blending and mixing different sources together to meet the requirements of the animal. So um, it's something that, you know, takes a little bit of time, but it's definitely worth it because in early pregnancy, for example, I know we're past that stage right now and we're, we're very fortunate that most cows are in high quality forages in early pregnancy, but let's say you're in a, situation where uh, you're calving in July, June or July, and you're just nicely pulling the bulls out and you want to mix good quality and low quality feed. If you short them on energy and protein, especially at this early stage, the amount or the number of stem cells that are being developed, which will be used to develop the organs, develop the tracheas and the muscle and the bone and the, and the fat tissue in future life, those are impaired. The number of cells that are there are going to be impaired and that calf will not grow as fast. It will be smaller at birth. It'll have more problems at calving with diseases and, and other postnatal problems that calves always tend to uh, have. So it may not seem like that early trimester is important for keeping that cow in good condition and meeting those requirements but it has a huge impact on next year's calf. That makes sense. It is pretty common knowledge that winter feed and, and that sort of stuff are one of our biggest expenses in the cow-calf industry. But as you said, poor winter nutrition can lead to a whole host of problems with calving and rebreeding and your next year's calf. So where do you think we can reduce costs in the winter feeding cycle and what should never be cut? Cutting costs or 
I don't like the word of cutting, but reducing winter feeding costs is managing what you have. How do you put in the straw and the, the Timothy aftermath? How do you put it in with the two-year-old hay or what you've got available? How do you, you know, the most expensive part right now is probably energy. You know, barley is still in that seven and a half to $8 a bushel range. So anything you can do to use uh, forages to supply energy will reduce your cost. Other thing is look for opportunities. If, if you've got a neighbor that has barley that's 42 pounds to the bushel and the elevators don't want to take it or they'll take it at such a big discount that it doesn't make sense, buy that 42 pound barley. There's no difference in energy efficiency on that lightweight grain uh, compared to 48 or 54 pound barley. So there's an opportunity to save a few dollars. Are there any byproducts available? Excuse me, wheat mids, wheat distillers, corn distillers. Are there any products like that uh, that can be used at a reduced cost that, that will help? Thin oats from the uh, oat processing plants, the stuff that doesn't go in there. Or even if you try getting some oat screenings, the hulls, there's enough crack seed in there or split seeds, that the energy level in that stuff is not too bad. So there's ways around it by using some of these alternate feeds. You're a little bit too far north to get involved with this one, but uh, the Edmonton potato processors, when they've got culls or a product that is not available, energy density in that is the same as in barley on a dry matter basis, and they can buy potatoes for $10 a ton. Look for these little things that'll do it. One of the things that will reduce your costs is keeping your cows in good body condition from fall to spring. A thin cow in fall, if she's 200 pounds light, and that's when you visually see the difference between a cow that's in good shape and one that isn't. If she's 200 pounds lighter, one body condition score light, she will need an additional 1,400 pounds of hay over the winter just to stay warm because she doesn't have the fat for insulation. Then you've got to add the extra weight back onto that cow throughout that winter so that she's at a body condition score three at calving. And the biggest thing is maintaining that body condition or have those cows gain a little bit of weight between calving and when the bulls are turned out. Some of the work that they did at the University of Alberta way back when with Dr. McElroy and Dr. Berg, they found that even a 40 to 50 pound drop in cow weight between calving and breeding usually caused a 15 to 20% increase in open cow rate. So there's really no way to cut costs, but if you can manage your cost efficiently so that your cows continue to do the work that they need to do for you, that's about the best you can do. All right. That makes sense to me. I think I've got that, uh, that fact sheet for that study. So I'll put that down in the description, but are there any other, is there anything we've missed that you'd like to mention or any resources or websites you'd like to, to plug before we sign off? The Beef Cattle Research Council has a website or BCRC website. They've got some really good information on there for various topics from animal health to nutrition to management to health. 
ideas that, you know, you might need to look for something. It works really, really well. They've got a lot of calculators and, and scenarios where you can put your numbers into some of the worksheets that they have to figure out what's happening on your farm. The Western Beef Development Center out of Saskatoon, they've got a, a number of fact sheets on their website as well. If anybody's interested in a teaser where you want just something that's three minutes to read on a topic, on our website, uh, beefconsultant.com, there's a section in there called BYOB. And under there, I've got numerous topics in there about anything from packing and covering silage to adjusting uh prices for silage depending on moisture conditions a little bit of everything there uh another good website it's a little bit harder to maneuver through is the saskatchewan agriculture and manitoba agriculture websites they've got some good information in their systems as well and of course if if nothing else you can always talk to joanna she's such a wealth of information it's not even funny I do my best. Uh, I'm really just well connected. I know all the smart people, so I can go, oh, I know who to ask for that. (laughs) That is half the job. Well, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the podcast, Terry. I appreciate it. Not a problem. This was fun. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!